Well, how many of you like puzzles out of curiosity? How many of you like puzzles? Okay, decent, decent number of you. How many, how many of you have done a thousand piece puzzle before? Okay, a lot. What about a 2,000 piece puzzle? Anyone? We got one. Okay, anything bigger than 2,000 pieces? Anyone? At the 6 p.m. service, someone said they did a, a 10,000 piece puzzle, which is pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive, but it pales in comparison to this guy that I read about uh, this week. I, I read the story of a guy who spent 13, or he spent hours every day for 13 months putting together one puzzle. And here's the puzzle. It's 28 feet wide, 50, 51,300 pieces, which is pretty incredible. And part of the fun of the puzzle is that all the pieces come in one box. So you just open up the box and it's a giant pile of puzzles. He, he said that it took him weeks and weeks just to sort out the pieces before he could even try to put them together. Now, if someone gave me a puzzle like that, I would accidentally light it on fire. Without, without, I mean, I, it stresses me out just thinking about a puzzle like that. But some of you, you would love to put that puzzle together. And when it comes to Luke chapter 21, we are looking at a very large puzzle. A very large puzzle. And this puzzle connects to the rest of the Bible. And to be clear, I'm not saying that Luke 21 is too complicated to understand. That's not my point at all. My point is that there are a lot of puzzle pieces in Luke chapter 21. A lot of moving pieces and a lot of details. And sometimes when something is complicated, we can get swept away with the complication. Uh, It can be too overwhelming for us to even think about it. And we can miss the the main point altogether. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to focus in on two big ideas, the two big ideas of our text. And these two big ideas will help us better understand all of Luke chapter 21. And here are the two big ideas. They're very simple. First, Jesus will return. Jesus will return. What we cannot miss in Luke chapter 21 is the promise that one day Jesus Christ will return. The resurrected Christ will return. That this world and this life will not continue moving forward the way that it's moving forward forever. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will return. The second big idea is that you should be ready. You should be ready to see the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And when Jesus gives us his word in Luke 21, he's not communicating with us so that we might be confused. That's not the point of Luke 21, to confuse the people of God. Rather, it's to help us get ready for the day when we see Jesus Christ face to face. So let's start with the first big idea, which is that Jesus will return. Verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you come upon you unexpectedly like a trap. And so the day that Jesus speaks of in verse 34 is the day of his return. And the return of Jesus is not some obscure doctrine in the Bible. It's not some uh, peripheral idea in the scriptures. Rather, the word of God promises the return of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of times all throughout the scriptures. In fact, all of the promises in the word of God find their fulfillment in the return of Jesus Christ. Their ultimate fulfillment is found in the return of Jesus Christ. So the entirety of the Bible is pushing our eyes and our lives to the day when Christ returns. And because of this, the entire Christian life is designed to be lived with the end in mind. And this is so hard for us because there are so many distractions in this life. There are so many details that we can get caught up in this life. Um, And there are so many good things that can take us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our jobs and our homes and our families and our hobbies and all these things in and of themselves are not inherently bad. 
but they, they can become a huge distraction to us as we try to follow Christ. And as Christians, we are to put our eyes on that day. First Peter 1 verse 13 says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on something. What are we to set our hope completely on? Our career? Should we be all about our 401k, our education, our kids? What are we to set our hope completely on? He says, we are to set our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this is why Jesus says in verse 34, be on your guard, prosecho, give your full attention to, keep your eye on that day. I mean, the Christian life really doesn't even make any sense unless there is a day when Jesus Christ returns. If there is no end, if Jesus, if this life is all there is, the Christian life doesn't make any sense at all. So Jesus says, be on your guard. There'll be many opportunities to be distracted. Keep your eyes on the prize. And there are so many pastors and so many churches in in our world today who are happy to market Jesus as the ultimate self-help guru for this life. And they're answering the question, how can Jesus improve your life right now? How can Jesus fulfill your dreams right now? Joel Osteen's book is called Your Best Life Now. How can Jesus give you your best life now? And the whole prosperity world offers Jesus Christ as a powerful, intelligent assistant to you in accomplishing your dreams. They'll say, are you single? Are you single? Come to Christ and you can get married. Are you a loser? You are? You're a loser? Come to Christ and you can maybe have uh, a few friends. Are you lonely? Come to Christ. And, and I don't know, maybe you, you won't be as lonely anymore. Are you broke? Come to Christ and you can be rich. You can make all the money you want in Christ. And this attitude of what can Christ do for me now This attitude is a poisonous weed in the garden of God's salvation. It is toxic, it's contagious, and it distorts everything that it touches. It spreads all over the place. Did you hear about that prosperity preacher in New York that got robbed while he was preaching? Did you hear about this? So there's a prosperity preacher in New York, and he's preaching to his his church. And these guys come in, and they rob him. And they robbed him because of his jewelry. So between him and his wife... Uh, they had $1 million of jewelry at church. And they said, we're going to go rob those people. And uh, I was reading the story, and I thought, uh, I thought you guys could rest assured that I will never be robbed while I'm preaching because of my jewelry. <laughs> now, Luke, on the other hand, I'm not quite sure. I, 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 can't, I can't make any promises about that. <laughs> but see, this way of thinking, it's important that we recognize this way of thinking. This way of thinking that Jesus came to give us our best life now, it is so subtle. And it's all over the place. And it's a perversion. It's a demonic perversion of the grace of God. See, Jesus did not come into the world to give us a promotion at work. That's not why he came. He did not come into the world to give us a promotion at work. Jesus came and lived and died and rose again that we might have eternal life, that we might be forgiven, that we might be spared from the wrath of God, that we might be reconciled back to God, that we might walk in the newness of life. Now, does God bless us in this life? Absolutely. But our joy is not to be in the blessings. Our joy is to be in the one who blesses us. And see, when Christ is our deepest joy, and when our lives are focused on the end, then we're free. We are free. We are free to lay down our lives. We're free to to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And when we sacrifice for Christ, it only increases our joy in Christ. 
So many of you, you've had this experience, I've had this experience, where you're, you're at a crossroads, and you've got to go one way or the other. There's, you know, I can probably justify not obeying God. I can probably justify uh, not doing what I think God wants me to do. And then on the other side, there's what I think God wants me to do, but it's harder. It, it's harder. It requires a little bit of risk, a little bit of uncertainty. And then you obey God from the heart. And even though you sacrifice something in doing that, you don't regret it. You don't turn around a year later and say, man, I'm so, I'm so, I so regret obeying God. You never say that. All it does, whenever you sacrifice by faith and obedience to God, all it does is increase your joy in Christ. It increases your joy in Christ. And so Jesus says, be on guard, be alert, pay attention, don't take your eyes off the end. Now, what do we learn from this passage about the return of Christ? Now, this topic the return of Christ, is a doorway into the rest of the Bible. So we could chase down a thousand rabbits uh, this morning looking at all these different truths in the scriptures about the return of Christ, but I don't want to do that because we're in Luke chapter 21. I want to focus in on Luke 21. What does Luke 21 teach us about the return of Jesus Christ? Well, verse 35, well, here's the key truth, and then we'll get to verse 35. The key truth is that the return of Jesus will eat eternally, eternally impact everyone and everything. The return of Jesus will eternally impact everyone and everything. Verse 35, for it, being the day of the Lord, will come on who? It will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. It will live on all who live on the face of the whole earth. So the return of Christ will not be a small, localized, insignificant event. It's not going to be this small thing that happens that only a few people know about. That's not what it is. The return of Christ will be a worldwide, world-ending event. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. Revelation 1-7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Just like he ascended after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, into the clouds. One day he will come in the clouds. He will return. He will descend from the clouds. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. When Christ comes in an instant, in a moment, every conversation on planet earth will come to an end. Like there are billions of conversations that are happening all the time. And when Christ comes, every conversation will come to an end. Every TV will be turned off. Every phone will be put down. Every pursuit in the world will be abandoned, every war will cease, and every person will stand in judgment before the judge of the earth, Jesus Christ. Acts 17, verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So the day that Jesus returns is the day of salvation for those who belong to Christ, and it is the day of judgment for those who do not know Christ. C.S. Lewis speaks of the return of Christ, and this is what he says. He says, for this time, it will be God without disguise. The first time Jesus came in a disguise. He was clothed in humanity, the incarnation, the God-man. But, but this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming, it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you chose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. 
it will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. See, every human being who's ever lived will be there. We will all be there. And we will stand in judgment before the resurrected Christ. And for those who do not know Christ, who shake their fist in anger at Christ, who outright reject his offer of salvation, they will meet the wrath of God. And there are so many people who are open in their hatred against Christ. Uh, there, there's a man who goes around to different events where there's large gatherings and he holds this sign. Uh, the sign says, if Jesus returns, kill him again. If Jesus returns, kill him again. And I think this is the attitude of the fallen human heart. If he returns, kill him again. This is one type of rejection of Christ. Then there's another type of rejection. It is a superficial belief in Christ where maybe people go to church, they're religious in some capacity, they try to be a nice person, but they haven't really embraced Christ. They don't know Christ. They don't love Christ. They haven't given their lives to Christ. They don't worship him, but they are religious. And whether you shake your fist in anger at God or you only have a superficial faith in Christ, a non-saving faith in Christ, when Christ returns, that will be the beginning of their eternal nightmare in hell. It is the day when the music stops, the game is over. It will be the day when they drink the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. But for those of us who know Christ, if you know Christ, do you know Christ? For those of us that know Christ, when the Lord Jesus returns, that day is the doorway into eternal bliss. It is the completion of our salvation. It is the final realization of our hope. It is the first breath of eternal glory and pleasure in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. It will be our first day in the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ returns, it will bring an end to the heavens and the earth. Second Peter chapter 3 says that the elements will burn away, the universe will be dissolved, and the Lord Jesus will recreate the heavens and the earth where righteousness dwells. This universe currently is messed up because of sin. It's fallen because of sin, but the new heavens and the new earth that we will live in will not be stained by sin. He will recreate them. We will get our new bodies. I mean, it's gonna be a glorious day for those of us who know Christ. And so Jesus is promising in Luke 21, he will return. He will return. Do you believe that? It's not a take it or leave it type of doctrine. It's not the type of doctrine where you say, you know what, I, I think Jesus is a good teacher. He might be the savior, but his return, I don't know if that's happening or not. That's, it's not a take it or leave it type of doctrine. We don't really have eternal salvation until he returns. That's not our, our final state is in the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God forever. And that won't happen until he returns. It's not a take it or leave it type of doctrine. And Jesus promises, he's given us his word, he will come. The second big idea is that you should be ready. The first big idea is that he's going to return. The second big idea is that you should be ready. And whether you die before the Lord comes or if you're alive when he's here, one way or, one way or another, you're going to see the resurrected Christ. And this is what Jesus is driving at in the text, that we should live in a way where we are not surprised. The day doesn't take, take us unexpectedly. Rather, we should be ready to see the Lord. Verse 34, be on your guard 
so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. He says, he says, you need to pay attention because you can be so distracted in this life, you can be intoxicated in this life, so that when Christ re- returns, you are not ready. So the big idea is that you should be ready. Since you don't know the day or the hour, you are to live ready to see the Lord. Luke 12, 37 says, blessed will be, will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to actually be waiting for the Lord when he returns? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? <laughs> He's coming through the clouds and you say, I've been waiting for you. My whole life has been based on this promise that you made, us, you made to us. Now one day you would return. Blessed are those servants the master finds alert, paying attention, waiting for that day. The saints who are not caught up in the day-to-day details of life, overwhelmed, focused on just this life, but the saints who live with the end in mind. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. And so the question that I want to look at with the rest of our time is the question, how can we be ready? How is it that we can be ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? And again, I'm going to try to stay as much as I can in Luke chapter 21. And there are two truths here that I want you to pay attention to. First, if we want to be ready, we need to be sober and holy. What does it look like to be ready? It means that you're sober and you are holy. You're sober-minded, and you pursue holiness. Verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. So this is a call to holy living. It is a call to sober-mindedness. And all throughout the scriptures, these two thoughts, they go together. Sober-mindedness, thinking clearly, and the pursuit of holiness. If you are not sober-minded, you will not pursue holiness. You won't do it. You need your mind. You need, you need a clear mind to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus men- mentions three intoxicating influences in the world. And these intoxicating influences make us unholy. It's the path of unrighteousness. It's the path of unholiness. The first intoxicating influence is carousing. It is carousing. Now, carousing is a word we never use. I've never heard someone use the word carousing outside of a biblical context. Like, hey, guys, do you want to go carousing tonight? Has anyone ever said that? Probably not. Let's go carousing. It never happens. But we know exactly what carousing is. It is the party scene. It is nightlife. It's the reason guys unbutton their top button. And they squirt themselves with 15 squirts of cologne. They get frosted tips. That's why frosted tips came into existence. Do people still do that? Do people still frost their tips? I hope not. <laughs> but that's, what, that's what's going on here. It's that we got to go out and party. Let's go party. That's what carousing is. Carousing is, this is my best understanding, group drinking and or gluttony and or sexual immorality. You just go out together with a group of people to go sin. In that environment, we can sit here at church and say, you know, that environment's it's dumb, it's bad, no big deal. But that environment is intoxicating. Just the environment is intoxicating. It has a draw. It has a pull on our soul. So many of you, you have come out of that life. You step into that world and it is intoxicating. You're like, wow, just being there before you get any alcohol in your system. There's something about it where there's sexual tension in the room. You're looking to fool around with someone. You're looking to get high. You're looking to get drunk. You want to have a good time. 
It's intoxicating. And not only does it, not only is it intoxicating, it, it is sinful. It blurs your vision. You, you go from being clear-minded to being weighed down. Jesus says in verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled. Translators don't know how to translate this phrase because there's not an equivalent. But basically the idea, well, the ba- basically, basically the idea is that to be dulled is to be weighed down. It's to be buried. It's like when you go out carousing, it's like you get buried in sin so you can't move. You're locked into it. And that's what happens when people go out, they live that life. How they live, they're not proud of it. They're not excited about it. You don't turn around the next morning and say, man, I am so grateful that I got wasted. I'm so thankful I woke up next to someone I don't even know. You don't think that way. See, sin only makes sense in the moment. It only makes sense in that exact moment. And so when you are intoxicated, when you're not sober-minded, you make terrible decisions. And it makes us unprepared to see the Lord. I mean, could you imagine someone who actually knows Christ? They go out carousing, party scene, living in sin, and Christ returns then? I mean, it's like, no, don't do that. You're, you're not ready to see the Lord. Matthew 24 says this in verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. That people are preoccupied with this life. The pleasures and cares and concerns of this life. So they're not ready. Intoxicating influence number two, drunkenness. Drunkenness. That's the second item listed that makes us dull, that, that weighs us down. It's drunkenness. And there's a difference between drunkenness and carousing. Carousing is group sin. Drunkenness sometimes starts off as group sin, but it often drives you into isolation. You can get drunk by yourself. Typically, people who are addicts, they, they get drunk and they get high by themselves. Now, the word here for drunkenness in, in the original language is a word you'll recognize. It's the word meth. Methe. It's a category. <clears throat> it just means intoxication. And alcohol was the most common way to become intoxicated, you know, thousands of years ago. But now we've been, we've grown to be more creative. There's a lot of opportunities to get high. And I want to be clear that this verse here is not forbidding Christians from ever consuming alcohol. This is a command against getting drunk. It is a command against any form of in, uh, inebriation. So you shouldn't get drunk, and also you should not use cocaine, you should not use meth, you should not smoke crack, you shouldn't smoke weed, you shouldn't eat brownies or gummy bears or cookies with weed in them or whatever people do, you shouldn't go out and have five beers, six beers, seven beers, you should not get drunk. Because we need to be sober-minded if we're to follow Christ. We need to be sober-minded if we are to live holy lives. If we're going to win the world to Christ, we need our minds fixed on that day. And in our culture today, it is totally normal for Christians to get drunk. Nobody bats an eye. Now, I'm not talking about like 30 beers drunk. Like, I'm not saying it's normal for Christians to go have 30 beers and, and just fall over and go to the hospital and get their stomach pumped. I'm not saying that's normal, normal. But what I'm saying is that it's totally normal for Christians to actually be inebriated. 
to be drunk. And the scriptures say don't do that. It's even, it's even becoming more and more acceptable for Christians to, to use marijuana, to smoke marijuana. And you see it more and more just creeping in all over the place. People say it's not a big deal to smoke weed. It's not a big deal to get drunk. I was at a coffee shop this week, and I was thinking about verse 34, and a Justin Bieber song came on uh, the, the radio when I was there, and Justin Bieber claims to be a Christian. Sometimes he leads worship, if you want to call it that. And uh, I'd heard the song before, but I never paid attention to it. And here's the song. It's called Peaches. This is what he says. He says, I got my peaches out in Georgia. And if these were the only words in the song, it would be a fine song. It would be good. <laughs> but there's a lot of other lyrics here. And he says, I got my peaches out in Georgia. Oh, yeah, cuss word. And then he says, I get my weed from California. That's that cuss word. And then I can't even read the rest of the song at church because it's so inappropriate. But I'm thankful for this song because I've always wondered where Justin gets his weed from. And now I guess we know he gets it from California. But this is the water that we swim in. This is the water we swim in. It's just like he's not even hiding it. There's no hiding. It's just whatever. You go... You get drunk, you smoke a little weed. Not a big deal. And that is not part of the Christian life. You need your mind. You need your mind. You need to be sober. You need to be engaged. And so often people get drunk, they use drugs to escape from life. And God is calling us to something different. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we see these concepts merged together. Therefore, with your minds ready for action... Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need a sober mind to set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. So you see, you see the merging of sober-mindedness and setting your hope on the end and living a holy life. That this is what God is calling us to. The third intoxicating influence is anxiety. Anxiety. Now, these three items on the list, at first, it doesn't fit. It didn't fit very well in my mind. Like, how are these things the same or connected? Carousing drunkenness and worry. Carousing drunkenness and worry. Well, they're the same in a lot of ways, actually. I think that worry is an intoxicating influence in your life. I think that's the implication, that anxiety is an intoxicating influence. Because, see, when you are anxious, your mind is consumed. I mean, you already know that anxiety is an intoxicating influence in your life. You already know that. You probably experience that, where you get a thought in your head, a fear in your head, something is happening in your brain, and it just goes over and over and over and over and over. It intoxicates you. Not the same way alcohol does, but it consumes your mind. It occupies your soul. It refocuses your eyes. It distracts your heart from Christ. And see, there is a relationship between anxiety and the commands of God. And you have to understand this relationship or you're going to take, naturally, you're just going to take the easy way. So let me explain the relationship between worry and the commands of God. The commands of God are designed by God to expose your anxiety. So what, what God does with his commands, if you're to take them seriously, is that he shows us and exposes us to our own worry, our own anxiety. 
so that we have an opportunity to trust him for the sake of trusting him. Now, just to feel stressed doesn't mean that you're in sin. But when worry grabs a hold of your heart, it will move you away from obedience to Christ. It will move you away from really trusting Christ. So just think about money for a moment. That if you were to be as generous as God is commanding you to be, it's going to naturally kick up some of your anxiety. Will I have enough money to live? Will I have enough money to live the way I want to live? Will I have enough money to retire? If I actually obey him in the area of, of generosity, what's going to happen is you're going to feel all these tensions. Will I have enough to take care of my family? And so this is an opportunity. Do we trust him? Do we not trust him? When it comes to the way we raise our kids, are we going to raise our kids the way that God is asking us to raise our kids? Or will we be bullied by the culture? Are we going to fear man or will we fear God in the way we raise our children? And see, if we raise our kids the way that God is asking us to raise our kids, that puts us at risk of looking different than the world. We may not gain the approval of people. We may not gain the approval of our parents. We may not gain the approval of our siblings. We may not gain the approval of our neighbors. And it might make us look weird. And so there's some anxiety that can come along with raising our kids the way that God is asking us to raise our kids. Or when it comes to sharing the gospel. When it comes to actually telling people about Christ. Many people from the very beginning dismiss that command. They won't open their mouth about Christ because instinctively they know it's going to disrupt my relationship. It might hurt my reputation. Therefore, I will be quiet to maintain these relationships. Because what happens if I tell people about Christ is that it might hurt my reputation. It might make me look bad. I might injure a friendship. So therefore, I will be quiet. But see, the command is pushing us. It's moving us to face our anxiety our difficulties. And so in our brains, if we say, okay, I'm going to listen to my anxiety in the moment, you will often disobey God. You will not walk in faith in Christ. And what God is calling us to is not a careless life. It's not a thoughtless life where we throw caution into the wind and we don't think about anything. God wants us to use our minds that we might trust him completely. Where we are willing to obey God, where we say we must obey God rather than man. And sometimes that creates fear in us. It creates anxiety in us. And so Jesus says, be on your guard. Don't be weighed down by all the worries of this life. Don't be weighed down. Don't let your minds be dulled. Now at this point, I would love to preach a sermon on overcoming worry. But we don't have time for that. So here's what you need to take away. It's that anxiety is not a neutral emotion in your soul. It's not neutral. It is not your friend. I mean, you might look at people, don't you look at people who are carousing? You probably wouldn't say this, so you don't even have to shake your head or no indication, okay? But you see someone who's out carousing and, you, and they claim to be a Christian, you say, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. Or you see someone who's drunk and they claim to be a Christian, and you say, how could you do that? Are you really a Christian? But then you see someone who's worried and you say, well, no, no biggie. We, we all are. So what I'm saying is we must make war against worry. 
To be a Christian life, you're gonna have to deal with your anxiety. You must make war. You must get God's word in your soul. You must trust the Lord. See, worry is a thief that robs us of our joy in Christ. So, how can we be ready? We need to be sober and we need to be holy. And then number two, how can we be ready? Be prayerful. Be prayerful. Verse 36, be alert at all times. So this is the same idea. Jesus is repeating the same idea as in verse 34. Be on your guard, be alert. Be on your guard, be alert. It's the same idea. Be on or be alert at all times. How are you to be alert at all times? Praying. Praying. The Christian life is a life of prayer. We are to, we are to aim at a vibrant, lively, regular prayer life. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. Prayerlessness is faithlessness. Prayerlessness is trust in ourselves and our own strength and our own wisdom. God is asking us to humble ourselves and seek him in prayer. This is the way that we are to live the Christian life. And the opposite in verse 36, when it says, be alert at all times, the opposite of being alert is falling asleep. Sometimes Jesus uses this illustration for us of of falling asleep. And there are so many things that wear us out in the Christian life. I mean, there's, I mean, do you ever get tired in the Christian life? <laughs> you ever get worn out? Oh man, there's so many things that make us grow weary. And Jesus says, don't go to sleep. Stay in the game. Stay alert. How do you do that? Pray. And what I've learned about prayer is that it is very difficult for me to be praying and lusting at the same time. It is very difficult for me to be praying and bitter at the same time. See, my awareness of the presence of Christ in me through his Holy Spirit automatically reorients my soul. Just automatically. It just, whoa, Christ is in me. He's with me. And so my awareness of Christ in me, it just changes everything. And so prayer, just communing with the Lord, it makes it very difficult to be proud. It makes it very difficult to hold a grudge. It makes it very difficult to to live for myself. Like, have you ever tried to lie while you're praying? Have you ever tried to scheme how you're going to lie while you're in prayer? (laughs) Give it a shot. See how it goes. You can't do it. It's like, it just, my awareness of Christ in me, it just reorients my whole soul. It keeps me awake. It keeps me alert. Now, what are we to pray about? Well, there are dozens of categories of prayer in the scripture. Thanksgiving wonderful category. Petitions, making your petitions known to the Lord, wonderful category. But what what Jesus has in mind in this passage is a prayer for endurance. It is the strength to endure, verse 36. But be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, all the trials and tribulations along the way to the return of Christ that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So it is a picture of making it to the end, enduring by the grace of God to the end, by the strength of God to the end, to stand before the Son of Man. Now, everyone will stand before the Son of Man. Everyone will stand in his presence in the glory of God, seeing Christ as he is. Everyone will make it there. Not everyone will stand after the judgment. See, to fall in judgment is to die. To fall in judgment is to be condemned. It's to be cut off. It is to, this is the day when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. So to stand 
in his presence is to survive the judgment of God. So here's the question you should think about. If Jesus is going to return, and if Jesus is going to judge the whole world, if you will stand in judgment before the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you survive his judgment? How do you stand? How do you stand and not fall? Well, you certainly cannot stand by your own goodness. You cannot stand by your own righteousness. I mean, could you imagine? Just imagine this scenario. This is what is happening all over the world. People... Religious people say, I believe there's a God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to give some money away. I'm going to serve in the nursery. I'm going to serve on the welcome team. I'm going to serve on the worship team. I'm going to be a really nice person. I'm going to go to Bible studies, and I'm going to stay away from bad stuff. And it's like that is the religious life that so many people have given themselves to. But see, the standard to to live in the presence of God is not your moral effort. That's not the standard. Because on that day, all of your sins will be exposed in the presence of a holy God, and you will be exposed as a sinner, and therefore worthy of condemnation, worthy of death, worthy of the wrath of God. So you cannot stand in the presence of a holy God according to your, your own, own moral effort. You cannot do it. You will fall in judgment. You will be condemned. You will die. Because, see, there are two places where sins are punished. The first place is in hell. Why do people go to hell? They go to hell to pay for their sins, where they experience the wrath of God forever. The second place is God's way out. It is God's salvation. The second place sins are punished are at the cross. That's why Jesus came. He came to bear our sins at the cross. Jesus took my sin. He took our sin in himself And he became guilty of committing our sins. And all of the wrath that God has aimed at sinners was aimed at his son instead as our substitute. That's who Jesus is. He came to bear our sin. He came to to be our guilt offering. And he bled and he died to take away our sin. And when he went into the grave, he went into the grave with our sin. And when he came out, he he did not bring our sins with him. They're gone. They're buried. It's over. And so now we've been raised in newness of life for those of us who are in Christ. Our sins are gone. They're buried in the depth of the ocean. They're separated from us as far as the east is from the west. And see, Christians are people who are not earning their way to heaven. They're not trying to be better than everyone so God will accept them. Christians are men and women who know that they are wretched apart from the grace of God. And they look to the cross, they say, The cross is my death. The cross is where my sins were paid for. The cross is where God demonstrated his love for me by killing his son in my place. Jesus bled and died to take away our sins. And for people who have turned from their sin and embraced Christ, God promises to give them eternal life. And so this is a prayer of endurance. This is what... Get God by, please, God, help me to endure. Help me to go all the way to the very end. And there's a great prayer in Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 24. This is a prayer. If you're looking for application, you should memorize this prayer. This should, you just pray this prayer every day or whenever, often. This prayer should be on your heart. This is what it says. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory. That's where we're going. Where we will stand in the presence of his glory. But how can you stand in the, in the presence of his glory? 
to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish. We will have, we will st- right now, if you're a Christian, you stand without blemish, without stain, without wrinkle before God himself. Clothed in the very righteousness of God, you will stand without blemish in his glory with great joy. <laughs> Where the glory of God will be our greatest joy for all eternity. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Are you ready to see the Lord? If you're not a Christian, have you put your faith in Christ. If you, if you have not, if you have not, you should give your life to Christ. You should look to the cross. And if you are a Christian, dear brothers and sisters, put your eyes on that day. Put your eyes on that day. Live, live today with the end in mind. Pray that God would give you strength to endure to the very end. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your mercy. Lord, it is because you are full of mercy and it, and it is because of your great love for us that you have redeemed us through the blood of your son. And I pray if there are people here this morning who don't know you, I pray that you would, uh, by your grace, open their eyes that they might put their trust in Jesus. And Lord, for the saints here this morning, for those, those of us who are distracted by life, by the cares and concerns of this life, uh, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes I pray they would not be intoxicated by worry. They would not be intoxicated by drugs and alcohol. They would not be intoxicated by carousing. Rather, I pray that they would be sober-minded. I pray that we would live holy lives that, that really honor you now. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.